Good morning. There we are. <laughs> How good is it to be back in church? Yay. We can actually use the, uh, the Bibles in the church here. And the Bible reading today is from Acts 16, verses 11 to 34. And you can find it on page 1109. That's 1109 in the church Bibles. And I'll let you have a minute to look for it at home as well. That's Acts 16, 11 to 34. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going on to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She'd followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fashion, fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. 
Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Good morning, everyone. Let me just say, it is wonderful to see people here. People have asked me this week, what do you think will happen? I said, I have no idea. So it is a delight to um, see you all here. And I know we've got um, over 45 people watching online. And to those who are watching, I think Kathy Kell, uh, Faye, Jennifer, uh, Perry and others, great to be joining with you and uh, also those out in the courtyard. I want to start by not giving the message, but I do want to say just a word of acknowledgement. Um, we've been through a very difficult time as a church. Not just us, but the whole country's been through a very difficult time. And I do want to acknowledge it has been very tough. It's been, I think, 19, 20 weeks since we've been together. And we were just starting to kind of take off in Term 2 and the building open, and then the third lockdown took place. And it's been a very difficult period. Uh, people have been cut off and isolated, and I know that's been difficult. I know people have been reaching out, which has been wonderful. Um, celebrations have been missed in all kinds of forms. Uh, we've had funerals that have been deeply impacted, weddings that have been delayed here in the parish, uh, people unable to come over from overseas, and you just have to mention these two words and parents shudder, uh, home and schooling. It's been very challenging for all of our families with young kids, and I also, my heart goes out to those at university, I just think what we experienced compared to what they are currently experiencing is so very different. Uh, let alone the HSC students who are currently about to sit their first exam next Tuesday. And so it has been a very difficult time. And so in the midst of that, I have just seen people being incredibly patient uh, and just they've waited. And I do want to say thank you very much for all of the patience that's been displayed uh, together as a community. Uh, I do want to say a very big thank you to everyone logging on. Uh, it's a funny thing to be encouraged by just seeing a number on a screen, but just to see how many people would log on each week uh, was so encouraging and to see people in the chat saying hello. And so thank you for doing that. I know we've still got people logging on for a whole bunch of reasons and it is encouraging to see. Um, I put out the three-quarter term finance report last week and Martin came and sat me down and it's always a kind of a moment of silence for I think what's it going to be this term and it was so encouraging to read how people have continued to give and giving actually went up in third term uh, which was quite remarkable and so I know many people have been a part of that some have put extra in thank you very much it's enabled us to going into the future be in a good position um, and there's my staff team who have been incredible um, it's not just been the past year, it's really been three years of incredible difficulty with the building program that was on, COVID on the back of it, opening a building, three lockdowns, and they have just been outstanding in terms of the way they have pivoted and pivoted and pivoted. I am sick of that word, but it is the word for COVID. Um, and in particular, I do want to acknowledge uh, two of my staff and mention them in person because without them, we really could not have done the live stream. And it is Nathan Campbell and Stuart Jansen. Do give them a big thanks. Scott said to me, imagine if it was up to me and you to do this. <laughs> I think the laughter says it all. 
I have a phrase, I won't repeat it, but it was not a positive one about where we'd be. Anyway, uh, but I also want to thank the Parish Council and the Wardens, particularly in these last two months. A lot of extra work's gone in. We've been meeting with a special subcommittee and uh, we've had a couple of doctors involved with that as well. Uh, Tim Evans in particular has installed some extraction fans that are blowing fresh air in from outside at a great rate, I understand. And uh, lots of work has gone into making today a safe place. And so on that note, a very big thank you to everyone and their involvement. And uh, let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you've brought us to this point and you've kept us safe. Who knows what the future holds, but in you we trust and the battle does belong to you and on our knees we seek you in prayer. Father, keep us safe. Help us to keep going and loving people and preaching the gospel and uh, speak to us from this wonderful passage this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start by asking this question, what does a healthy church look like? And it's an important question that um, on occasion you've really got to think deeply about because we live in a very mobile society, I think, the most mobile period uh, in history in the way people will not just move suburb, they'll move city, they'll move country. We particularly experience it here in Manly. It's got one of the highest, it's called demographic churns in the country in terms of the way people come in and out. Uh, We have numbers of expats we welcome every year, which is a wonderful blessing for the church in terms of the richness they bring with their overseas experience. And so when you do move, you want to ask the question, what does a healthy church look like as you try and find a healthy church? And I was thinking about this um, question, and there's numbers of things you could talk about, but at the base of any healthy church is the fact that the gospel is believed, that Jesus died for our sins. His blood, as that song spoke of, was shed for us, and it washes us clean, and Jesus rose bodily, physically from the grave. That is our hope in Him, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, a healthy church will be a place where the Word of God is treasured as the very Word of God. And it's treasured, it's read, and it's followed, and it's obeyed. But thirdly, thirdly, there is a sense of personal relationship um, born by the Holy Spirit where we, we know God personally and we pray to Him. And one of the great evidences of people knowing God personally in the power of the Holy Spirit, is their prayer life. That they walk with God and they pray to Him. And as a church, you want to join a church that's a praying community because they know the living God. But fourthly, uh, the result of all that will be that there will be love in that community. And not just a love for friends, but what I often call an uncommon love. One of the defining features of the ethic of Jesus is that you would love your enemy and I think it marks out the difference of the Christian community to every other community. Because of the love we've experienced in Christ who died for his enemies, we love everyone and so when you look for a healthy church, how can you see it? Well, one of the ways you'll see it is its diversity. It's unlike other communities that are based around interests, social standing. The church has no boundaries at that level. It's incredibly diverse and it finds its unity in the gospel, revealed in the scriptures, experienced prayerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit and in this community of love. Now we come to a passage which I think paints this beautiful picture of 
a church just like that that was born out of the preaching of the gospel and it's the church in Philippi and it is a beautiful church story um, and if you've got your Bibles there I think they're under the seats uh, Acts chapter 16 if you've got your devices we're all very familiar with that open up Acts chapter 16 but let me just give some context uh, as we think about the beauty of the beauty of diversity that we find in this church at Philippi uh, Last week, Scott brought the message about the Jerusalem Council, an incredibly important event in the life of the early church because it was at that council that they made that binding decision that you don't have to, as a Gentile, which is us, non-Jewish, become Jewish to join the people of God. We need to respect them and love our Jewish brothers in Christ, but we don't have to become like them in terms of Jewishness. Why? Because we are saved by grace and we take hold of that through faith, not by works. Now, after that decision was handed down, Paul and some of his companions went back up to Antioch in the north to deliver the verdict. And we read in verse 36 of uh, chapter 15, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they're doing. And so Paul has this idea, we've planted some churches up uh, in modern day Turkey, over in Cyprus, we should go back and see how they're doing in the Lord. Now, a great breakup, fight, breakdown of relationship erupts between Paul and Barnabas. I won't go into the details of it. But the end story is Barnabas goes off and visits the church in Cyprus and Paul goes north and sees the churches in modern-day Turkey that they both together work to start. And then after Paul has seen those churches, a new work begins and he feels called by the Holy Spirit to go across the water up to what is now modern-day North Greece and visits a town called Philippi. And that begins, in, a sense, in essence, the beginning of his second missionary journey, which is up through the Greek towns before he returns back. And we come to the first of those towns, Philippi, and it's Acts chapter 16 that we pick the story up. And it's worth noting, in overview, there's a picture of three different encounters, gospel ministry encounters, that Paul has with three different people in the town of Philippi. And, and these three people could not be more different to each other. And the encounters, in terms of the ministry, could not be more different to each other. Yet by the end of the story, they're all together. And I want to go through and just look at each of these encounters. And one of the beautiful things about the book of Acts is we've probably got more stories of people being converted to Christ than any other part of Scripture. And it's why it's such a rich part of Scripture to read, is to read these stories that are so engaging and so intriguing. The first one is what I will call an upper-class businesswoman who is spiritually seeking, and it's the Lady Lydia. And if you've got your Bibles there, I'm looking at verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Well, let's ask the question, who was this Lydia? Well, there's a number of things we can say about her. Her name comes from the region she came from. Thyatira was in the region of Lydia. 
And she's a successful businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth, which was the cloth for the wealthy, for the royal blood. Uh, she's a significant businesswoman. And she's a wealthy lady. Uh, we note later that the church ends up meeting in her place, and so it was big enough for others to come and gather in. And she's this significant woman in the town of Philippi. The fact that she is name is significant because typically women weren't named uh, in uh, narrative stories like this. It may have been because she came well known in the church. It may have been that she was well known in the city. But she's a significant lady. And I thought, who would she equate to in terms of today's world? And I thought of a couple of ladies um, that are significant women businesswomen. Maxine Horn, you may not know her. She's the CEO of Vita Group. She was the one who first put mobile phone booths into shopping centres. She is very rich. She's done very well. Very able lady. There's Leslie Gillespie, co-founder of Baker's Delight, which is now this international bakery. Or Janine Alice, who started Boost Juice from her home in 2000. I would hate to think how much any of them have earned, but let me say it's a lot more than probably most or all of us. Um, that's the kind of person Lydia would, you know, rub shoulders with. A successful businesswoman in her day and age. And what we're told is that she is a spiritual seeker. She meets Paul at the place of prayer, and Paul goes to the place of prayer which indicates that she'd attached herself to the Jewish community in Philippi. She was a God-fearer who worshipped God, so she's not Jewish, but the place of prayer most likely is the place where uh, the Jewish people gathered. Perhaps no synagogue was there, and they are meeting to pray, and Paul goes there, as was his practice, to meet with the Jewish people first when he went to a new city. And she has joined them. And so you sense in this woman's heart there is this seeking of God, as Paul says. And you have this very simple phrase that Luke, who writes Acts, says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And no doubt Paul went to this place of prayer and began to teach the gospel there and explain how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. And she responds. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house and she persuaded us. You get the feeling she's a woman of great significance and persuasive powers. And so began, in one sense, the church at Philippi, there at her place. Now, let's think about how she became a Christian. You could say it's fairly standard for us. She hears a message about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is explained to her. And God, by His Holy Spirit, opens her heart to see the truth of what Paul is saying and respond in faith. There's a human work of explaining the gospel, there's a divine work of God enabling someone to respond. And it's typical of what we would see here today. People turn up at church, you may be here for the first time, and you're drawn in, it's wonderful to have you come. You may be watching online and God is opening and working in your life so that you see that God loves you and in Christ is calling you to come to Him. And we see many people come to faith like that and they respond to the gospel, they give their life to Christ. It might also be through Alpha or Christianity Explored or one-to-one -one someone sharing the gospel. But the gospel's heard, the person comes to believe it, they respond as God opens their heart to the message. What's interesting is to compare both how this woman comes to faith and who this woman is to the other two stories. Because the second person we meet is a lower class slave lady who was spiritually oppressed. Verse 16. 
once we, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She's possessed by an evil spirit. She's almost the exact opposite of Lydia. She was poor, not rich. She could have been from anywhere ethnically, not the local region. She was exploited and not in control. She was demon-possessed, which meant that morally and spiritually she was not upright in the way that Lydia most likely was. But interestingly, she knew the most out of all three. You read in verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days and the picture you have is that Paul each day was going or on his each week would go to this place of prayer and instruct the uh, people there, including Lydia. And after a while, this slave girl is just annoying Paul. And I doubt that she is saying this in a complimentary or helpful way, uh, the words, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She's just trying to annoy them and put them off and probably mock them. Psychologically, she's bound by demons. And there's there's this sense of spiritual and psychological oppression that was taking place. Socially, she's bound by her masters. There's this great sense of social oppression and injustice. And if Lydia is like one of those three CEOs that I mentioned, this slave girl is probably like a prostitute from the inner city under the control of a pimp in a brothel, owned, oppressed, downtrodden. I can't think of two women more far apart Socially, educationally, financially, spiritually, they are so different. Listen to what happens in verse 18. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. In simple terms, it's an exorcism. The Spirit is cast out. Paul obviously realised that this opposition to him and the gospel that was coming from this woman was not human, but was spiritually inspired by the devil who had taken possession of this woman's soul. And so, by prayer, he exercised the evil spirit and she was freed. And I thought it is worth noting exorcisms are real. We don't typically see them here in the West that has not had the same level of exposure to the occult. But it is very real and in my ministry, I've not just read about it in the scriptures, I have encountered it on a number of occasions and been called in for ministry. And it is something that badly affects people and binds them. The devil only comes to kill and destroy. And let me just say, my strong warning always is do not get involved in anything that smells of the occult. It is real and it is very dangerous. And so here we are with this slave woman. There's no gospel preaching, but rather a ministry of prayer to the person to be released from the hold of the devil. Now, it is worth noting at this point, we're not told that she was converted. But I think it's safe to assume that she joined this new Christian community and was welcomed in by Paul. You cannot see Paul wanting to do anything else. He wouldn't just leave her, now you're free. He would have welcomed her in. And you think of that possibility. 
of Lydia opening the door to this slave woman in her house. But also think of the method. Lydia hears the gospel. You could say it's a rational presentation. But what happens here is this spiritual encounter. And I was thinking of people in the parish here and I remember very vividly speaking to one girl who had come to faith from a different uh, ethnic background, atheistic in her understanding of life and worldview, but with a personal issue that had plagued her and had sought prayer with a Christian and when prayed for, she met Jesus, is the only way you could describe it. And subsequent to that, had the gospel explained and came to faith. And you could only say it was just this spiritual encounter with the risen Lord Jesus in the context of prayer. And it's amazing how God will work at times to arrest people and it's why we need to keep praying that God is at work in the hearts of those who are far from Him, who are close to us, that God might work powerfully to open them up to the Gospel. And I was thinking about these two women prior to Paul entering Philippi. And you could imagine Lydia walking to the place of prayer and just walking straight past this woman, probably with a sense of disdain. But now she's in her house, worshipping. And then there's the jailer, the prison guard. Well, after the commotion had been caused by this exorcism of the slave girl, we read in verse 19 that the owners realised that their hope of making money from her was gone. And of course, she would predict the future and not her, but her owners, I mean, it's such a horrific thought, would profit from it as they kept her in slavery. Well, that's gone, you see, because she's no longer doing it. She's been freed. And they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Not because they've done anything wrong, just because they're angry that their source of income economically has just disappeared with a prayer. And they brought before them the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar, which is a complete exaggeration. But you see, in their anger, they just want to have some sense of revenge. They're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And so you've got these trumped up charges. Well, the crowd joined in the attack on Paul and Silas and then the magistrates ordered for them to be stripped and beaten with rods. They just see the outcry. They see the supposed perpetrators of it. And they just say, look, let's get them. And they strip them and they beat them with rods. And let me say, this is a Roman place, uh, town. It would have been horrendous what happened to them. We know later that they had wounds that needed to be bound up and cared for. After they've been severely flogged, note the language, they're thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And you think, really? The Apostle Paul, you've got to put him in manacles? You've got to have a private um, prison warder for him? And I take it. It's quite possible that they saw the exorcism and thought, maybe these men have supernatural powers. And so we need to put them in the inner cell and put a special guard on them. There was a sense of fear about them. What happens next is remarkable. Verse 25. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And they were singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. 
Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison door open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now stop and think about what's taken place here. The prison doors are open and the jailer's about to commit suicide. And the reason for that is because his job was to guard them and he thinks they're gone and he would have been been facing execution and quite likely in a very painful manner he thinks I'll just do it myself and get it over with. Paul and Silas could have run but they didn't. Instead they stay And they don't just stay, they take charge of the situation. And they stop everyone else from escaping. Now it's interesting, I'm sure Paul would have known that the Apostle Peter, and we read about that in Acts chapter 12, was also in prison and through supernatural means was allowed to escape. And so there was precedent for apostles being both imprisoned and supernaturally being allowed to escape. And yet Paul does the exact opposite. And you do wonder what he was praying. I suspect he was praying for justice, but I also imagine he was praying for opportunities to share the gospel because we know that when he was in prison, he just saw that as a new congregation to preach to. We read that in other parts of his writings. But what happens here is he stops the exodus. And shortly after, the jailer is converted verse 29 the jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas he then brought them out and asked says what must I do to be saved well they replied believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved a very classic simple explanation of the gospel given by Paul you and your household then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house at that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Lydia is a spiritual seeker. She hears the gospel, she's converted. The slave woman encounters God personally through this personal exorcism. What's happening here with the jailer? It's different to these two. You've got to ask the question, why does he ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And you think about the jailer. Quite likely, he's a former Roman soldier. May not have been, but quite likely. From a spiritual point of view, I would imagine he's not like Lydia seeking God. He's probably just someone who went through the motions in terms of offering the sacrifices that would have been very common in his culture a sense of apathy. He's not seeking, he's fine. And interestingly, in the first two stories, Paul brings the ministry to the women. He goes to find them, Lydia and the cohort at the place of prayer. He goes to the slave girl to exercise her. But this time it's the opposite, the man comes to Paul. And you see, Paul didn't tell him the gospel first. 
Paul showed him the gospel. I want you to think about that. Paul didn't tell him the gospel first, he showed him the gospel. Paul had been tortured. It's the only way you could describe the beating. I mean, the language that Luke uses is a severe flogging. The jailer was callous and indifferent to Paul's suffering. And the reason I say that is, it's only after he's converted does he tend to his wounds. And so he was actually there in the cell with him, probably right next to him, with wounds that would have been open and weeping and doing nothing. And these men that he perhaps mocked save his life. That's literally what Paul did. And you think about the experience and the witness of Paul in the prison. In the midst of their pain, what are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God. Though their life was ebbing away, the jailer would have seen that they, this is Paul and Silas, had something that suffering could not take away. And though they could have escaped, they didn't escape. And not just didn't escape, they stayed and made the others stay to save the jailer's life. I mentioned at the start that one of the marks of a healthy church, and it's the defining mark that you can see, is love. And the defining mark of Jesus' ethic of love is that you love your enemies. Is that not right? Don't just love those who are the same as you. Love your enemies. And I think here, you have one of the most concrete and profound examples of someone in the New Testament actually doing that. That Paul, in the face of a jailer who just scorned helping him, had no concern for him, he loves him and saves his life. And that jailer looked at him and just thought, you've got something I don't have. And no doubt he would have heard the praise to the risen Lord Jesus in the hymns that they sang because Luke says all the prisoners could hear it. And he wants what they've got. And he was converted. A story had come into Paul's life about the risen Lord Jesus that had changed him and his companions so radically in how they handled abuse and suffering that a hardened, apathetic jailer wanted it and you think about what Peter teaches in his letter 1 Peter chapter 3 live in such a way that they ask you for the reason that you have hope and that's exactly what Paul was doing here and you see this is the power of the gospel when it's believed that God sent his son to die for his enemies And we take hold of that in the Word of God, which we believe is the very Word of God, and we become this community that know Him in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray to Him for ourselves and for others. And it produces in us this incredibly uncommon love. And that's exactly what you see here in the church at Philippi. And I want to finish with these words from verse 40. And I want you to think about all I've said and what this verse is describing. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, then they left. They met there with the upper class woman, the lower class slave girl, 
the hardened Roman jailer and others. And they are together in this profound, diverse community. And friends, it is beautiful. And that is the beauty of diversity. The way God works through the gospel in so many different ways to bring people to a knowledge of Him from such different backgrounds, economically, socially, racially, spiritually, and make them one in Christ. And friends, when you see that diversity in the gospel, that is a healthy church. May we be like that here at St. Matthew's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful story. So profound, really, in terms of what took place. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn much from it and we would be much like it. And that there would be a a, a beautiful diversity here of people of different ages, stages, races, social standing, spiritual backgrounds, who find our unity, our oneness, our common life together in Christ in the gospel, revealed in the scriptures, experienced in the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer, and in a loving community together. May that be true for us here, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.